You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Nate. Well, in turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we are still in the introductory portion of Paul's letter. And in this first portion of the letter, all the way through chapter 6, Paul is addressing problems that he'd heard about in the Corinthian church. One of the first problems that he'd heard about was a tribalism that had become unhealthy in the church. Some said, I am of Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Peter, or Christ. And that had led to division in the church that was unhealthy and unhelpful to the cause of Christ. For as long as we battle one another, we are not fighting the true battle or the true enemy. In chapter 5, Paul is going to turn his attention to some other problems that he'd heard about in the Corinthian church, namely some flagrant sexual immorality, lawsuits one against the other, and personal sexual immorality that was running rampant in the church. Once we get to chapter 7, Paul is going to begin to answer the questions that they had written to him about. But in these first six chapters, Paul is dealing with what he had heard about the Corinthian church. Now, as we turn to chapter 4, we remember at the close of chapter 3 that Paul had explained to the church in Corinth not to put their boast in men. He announced to them in verse 22 of chapter 3 that Paul, Apollos, Cephas, all belonged to them as a church. He said, you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So rather than tying yourself to just one man, uh, recognize that they are all gifts from the Lord to you as the church. But how should the Corinthian church and the church in general regard spiritual leadership. Well, he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Here, Paul continued to hammer on his theme, how to treat Paul, Apollos, and other ministers of the gospel. First of all, he refers to them as servants of Christ. This is how you should regard us. We are subordinates to Jesus Christ, Paul announced. But not only are we underneath the Lord, following his direction and his guidance for our lives, but we are, number two, stewards of the mysteries of God, he says there in verse 1 and also in verse 2. Now, a steward in an ancient household was a manager of the household, responsible for the belongings, the finances, the staff, and often even the children of the master of the house. And Paul, as he thought of himself, thought of himself in that way, as someone who was merely a manager of the belongings, the message, the household of another, and that another, of course, is Jesus Christ. 
Now, he specifically said, I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. All the way back in chapter 2, Paul declared that the Spirit had awakened him and others to the mysteries of God. And so he was a man who was faithful to that call of God upon his life. That's why he says in verse 2, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. You see, that's what the Lord is looking for. He's looking for a faithfulness to what he has entrusted into our care. We will not be judged necessarily on the fruitfulness or on the results of what we've done, for that is the Lord's responsibility, but our faithfulness to the task. He goes on to say in verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, here Paul announces that he thought it a very small thing if the Corinthians or any other human court judged him and his work. Uh, They had, of course, attempted to do this, to judge Paul. Literally, the word judge means to sift the evidence. They were sifting Paul. They were sifting his life. And of course, they had a predetermined result that they were driving for. They had begun to adopt other teachers, super apostles, quote unquote, and Paul was now defending himself against them. So he announces, look, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. But he also announced that he did not even judge himself. You see, Paul did not see himself, let alone the Corinthians, as qualified to judge him or his motives. But in all of that, Paul announced that he was not thereby acquitted because he was not aware of anything himself, but the Lord would be his ultimate judge. Now, this is a fascinating attitude that the apostle had concerning the attacks from the Corinthian church. I think it's good for us to notice how secure he was in who Christ had made him to be, how strong he was in his faith and in his calling, and how little the critiques, the criticisms, the complaints of the people around him affected his life. He was truly going to the Lord and asking the Lord, am I doing all your will? truly felt that Jesus Christ would have to be the judge of his life. Paul is not meaning to come across. He is not meaning to operate like an immature believer who says, no man can judge me and attempts to act above authority. No, Paul was a man who was in authority, but also under authority. And there were plenty of people in his life that he would have gladly heard from had they needed to bring a word of correction into his life. But these Corinthian believers were carnal. He could not listen to their voices. He could not listen to their critiques. He felt himself above judgment from these people. Therefore, verse 5, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Here, Paul announces in this fifth verse that the Lord's future judgment 
necessitates a present-day application. The present-day application of the fact that Christ will come and judge all flesh is that we should not pronounce judgment before the time before he comes. You see, when Jesus comes, Paul announces, he will bring to light all that is hidden. So we should not engage in premature judgment, exalting some and rejecting others now when, in fact, the Lord will take care of that final judgment. Now, in verse 6, Paul moves on into talking about how he had been misunderstood as a messenger, and so he's going to explain his ministry. He says in verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Uh, Here, Paul is announcing that perhaps the real schism was not the Paul versus Apollos camp, but other unnamed teachers. That's why he uses the phrase, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So it's very possible that he's applied it to Paul and Apollos, but the reality is that they had issues with other teachers, that it was actually Paul versus others. And so Paul says, look, I'm teaching you to not go beyond what is written. Uh, This phrase, what is written, is often used to introduce Old Testament quotations. And so the context seems to be, instead of holding a high or low opinion of various teachers, they ought to consider God's view as the only valid view and not go beyond it. Uh, This is so often the case in the body of Christ, a tendency to go way beyond the scripture, to go outside of the scripture and to trust our own opinions, our own feelings and thoughts about various teachers or teachings. But here, Paul said, you must learn not to go beyond what is written. For who sees anything different in you, verse 7? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. When Paul asks the question in verse 7, who sees anything different in you? What he's asking is a question dealing with their perceived superiority. Other versions ask the question this way, what makes you so superior? Or who makes you so different from anyone else? You see, some Christians evidently were boasting because of their talents, positions, and their parties. They felt they were different from other churches and superior in their gifts. That's how the Corinthian believers thought about themselves. And Paul asked the question, Hey, didn't you receive it? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Uh, They were acting as if they had somehow earned or manufactured their giftings and their abilities and their success as a church when really it had come from the Lord. Paul, though, hinted at how they felt about themselves. Notice they thought that they were incredibly full. 
That's why Paul asks them or says to them, already you have all you want. They thought that they were satiated and satisfied by their load of teachers. They also apparently thought they were rich. That's why Paul says, already you have become rich. They thought they were prosperous and successful by their large work. And additionally, they thought that they were kings, influential and powerful with a grand reputation. That's why he said, without us, you have become kings. Paul is speaking tongue-in-cheek to these people. He said, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. You know, the truth of the matter is that they were none of these things. They didn't have all they wanted. They weren't wealthy. They weren't uh, influential or powerful in a spiritual sense at all. Uh, They were gifted. They were called. And they were set apart to God, but their pride had gotten in the way. Here, Paul is teaching that Christ-like humility should be taken up by all believers. They should have praised God for receiving grace, but instead boasted as if they had not received it. They should have been poor in spirit, but instead they were acting rich. They should have been servants of Christ, but instead were behaving like kings. Now, unfortunately, many have followed the Corinthian example of wanting exaltation without humiliation. You see, the desperate church is the effective church. The world is filled with adversaries. The world is no playground for the body of Christ. And the reality is we need the Lord's help greatly. But the Corinthians did not act as if they were in need. They acted as if they had arrived and felt that this attitude of superiority, spiritual wealth, prosperity, being leaders and kings, they acted as if this was a Christ-like attitude. Look, the truth of the matter is that this type of thinking often bleeds its way into the mind and the heart of modern believers. There are many who teach a line of doctrine that communicates that the more faith you have, the more positive you are, the more affirmative or affirming your words are, the grander your faith, then God is obliged to bless your life. And and oftentimes those blessings come in the minds of the people who feel this way in the physical dimension and realm. They want to be rich. They want to be influential and powerful. They want all of these things, but the reality is they are spiritual paupers. You see, a day is coming where the Lord will give to us the health. The Lord will give to us the wealth. The Lord will give to us that security. But we are not living in that era today. It is not through the strength of our words, the power of our faith, that we bring heaven into our lives in the physical sense. Now, I'm all about the kingdom of heaven expanding. I just don't think that the kingdom of heaven means that each believer should aspire to great personal financial wealth here in this life. There's nothing wrong with wealth. The Lord has called believers who are in poverty and believers who are in wealth. And if God has given you the ability to earn well, then earn well for the kingdom and the glory of God. But if the Lord has not put that in your life, do not believe that you must, through your faith, bring about financial prosperity into your life. 
Paul goes on to say in verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Here, Paul wanted them to consider the apostles, uh, exhibited by God as the last of all. Though, of course, for believers, the apostles are the greatest, in a sense, in his kingdom. We're so thankful to God for these men and the way that they laid down the foundation of the church after Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. But Paul, he saw them as an exhibit by God as the last of all. They were a spectacle, he says in verse 9, to the world, to angels, and to men. And you can imagine that as Paul and his comrades in ministry stood before nobles and rulers and authorities. He says in verse 10 that they were fools for Christ's sake. They were rejected. They taught things that the world would consider foolish about heaven and the end times and the resurrection and scripture. Uh, They were weak. They were at the mercy of the authorities, outmanned and outnumbered and outfinanced. They were held in disrepute, verse 10, rather than honored everywhere. Now, this was the world's view, and the Corinthians had begun to adopt the world's view. The reality is that these apostles were the wisest, strongest, and most honorable men in all of history. But here, Paul goes on to say that they were hungry and thirsty, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless. They were men well acquainted with poverty. They labored. As they built tents, like Paul did, they worked with their own hands. They were reviled and persecuted and slandered, he says in verse 12 and 13. And in verse 13, he announces that they were the scum of the world. That is the off-scouring, the brushed or scraped off stuff of the world. This actually is a word that would be used for worthless men, considered so by the culture at the time, who would be sacrificed alive to pagan gods. Uh, Sometimes they would find their worst criminals sentenced to death and hold them for a time when they would need a human sacrifice, such as throwing a man into the ocean for the false god Neptune or something like that. They would use the phrase, the scum of the world, to describe men like that. But Paul said, no, as apostles, that's what we are to the world. Now, why did Paul and the others do this ministry? Because they knew that Christ had risen from the dead. They believed in Jesus. They loved what he had done for them. In fact, Paul was thankful for all of this. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. How could, how could anyone embrace a prosperity gospel after passages like 
these where the apostles are described. It's just beyond me. Now Paul goes on in verse 14 to say to the church in Corinth, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see, others would teach the Corinthians. uh, But Paul had fathered them and had their interests at heart. The couple versions, the Holman Christian and the New King James Version, say you have 10,000 instructors in Christ. The NIV says you have 10,000 guardians in Christ. But Paul, though they had countless guides, he was their singular father in Christ. He had planted the church. He had established them. And as an apostle, he could speak to them in an authoritative way that no other teacher could speak to them. You see, in your local church, God has given to you leadership. And we live in an age where there are countless instructors accessible to every believer. In fact, you might be listening even to this teaching from far away. You know, in a place that I am not able to serve as your local church pastor, but where God has called you to a local congregation and fellowship. And even though I might be one of the 10,000 instructors accessible to you in Christ Jesus, the Lord has blessed you with your own spiritual leadership more than likely. And Paul, for the Corinthian church, was not only their true leadership, he was their father in Christ Jesus. Uh, Later in Hebrews chapter 13, it says, Remember your leaders Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You see, the reality is that the Lord has put leaders in individual churches who should be able to lead their congregations, who the church should consider their way of life and imitate their faith. This kind of concept flies in the face of the modern spirit of accumulating teachers, of shopping around for churches. Paul had a different perspective. He just said, look, you might have countless guides in Christ, but you do not have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Then he says in verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. You see, as their spiritual father, Paul wanted them to imitate his way of life, which was actually an imitation of Jesus' life. He wanted a like-father-like-son relationship with the Corinthians. Basically, they weren't behaving in any way like a church Paul would have founded. He wanted the marks of his leadership to be found in them. But their divisiveness and their desire to have it all now rather than humble themselves before exaltation was so unlike Paul. So he pleads with them, hey, look, I urge you, be imitators of me. Now, 
Timothy was a man who had imitated Paul. And so Paul sent Timothy to the church in Corinth as an extension of Paul's fatherly work. You might remember in Philippians chapter 2, when describing Timothy, Paul said, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So Paul sent this man, Timothy, to follow up and to set an example for the Corinthian church, to remind them of Paul's ways in Christ. Now in verse 18, he concludes the chapter by saying, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. You know, some behaved as if Paul would never revisit Corinth. But Paul said in verse 19, I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? You see, Paul knew that not everyone would be motivated by his appeal to them. So he warned them that he was coming, lest they cast Timothy aside. You know, not everyone who would hear Paul's words, read Paul's words and say, you know, that's just so true. I need to follow his example. I've been a little prideful. But Paul knew that some would reject that. And so he says, well, I'm coming. And when I come, it could be a coming with a rod, which is an emblem of discipline and authority, or it could be a coming in love and a spirit of gentleness. And here we see that Paul would not shy away from discipline. Now let me conclude this teaching and this chapter by giving four implications for parents from Paul's words. Number one, Parents must be an example worthy of imitation. Do you notice that there about Paul? He is not only telling the Corinthians how to behave, but he's willing to behave that way himself. He's asking them to imitate him. And a parent must be worthy of imitation. You cannot preach a message to your children, tell your children to behave in a certain way, yet be unwilling to do it yourself. Number two, Parents must realize the difference between themselves and every other instructor. Paul had that. He realized that other instructors were fine and good and even a possible blessing to the Corinthian believers, although they probably had accumulated too many and were listening to to too many voices. But Paul realized, I'm the father of this church. My voice is different. My voice should stand out. Number three, become a spiritual parent also. You see, Paul understood that he was not, of course, the physical parent of the church in Corinth, but that he was the spiritual parent of the church in Corinth. And as parents, we should have that desire, not only to be the physical, biological parent in the flesh, but also to be a spiritual parent, to be a mentor to our children. And number four, we should be willing to discipline when necessary. Paul had that within his heart. He was willing to come with the rod if necessary. He was willing to say the hard things, to bring the discipline into the lives of the church there in Corinth. 
Not everything in his life or parental work as an apostle would be love and a spirit of gentleness. Some of it would be a a rod. It would be difficult. It would be confrontational. And this is a good word for parents who might be tempted to have everything be all fun and games and love and gentleness, which is good. And I've talked to many parents that I've had to encourage in that direction because their discipline has been relationless, stiff, and too strict. But some parents trend towards a style of parenting that is void of discipline. And here we should see through Paul's example that we should be encouraged to actually discipline when necessary. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.